The following is Nature of Business with Chrissy Coughlin in association with GreenBiz.com. Get out of this town! Yeah, and go where? Where are we gonna go? I'll tell you where. Someplace warm. A place where the beer flows like wine. Where beautiful women instinctively flock like the salmon of Capistrano. I'm talking about a little place called Aspen. Welcome back. This is Chrissy Coughlin, and you're listening to Nature of Business. Thank you for joining me this morning. I have with me today uh, Auden Schendler. He's the Vice President of Sustainability at the Aspen Ski Company. Um, he previously worked in, uh, in corporate sustainability at the Rocky Mountain Institute, and his writing has been published in Harvard Business Review, LA Times, Slate, Scientific American, Earth 3.0, and Salon.com, and his work has been covered in magazines such as Outside, Fast Company, Travel and Leisure, and Business Week. And in 2006, Auden was named the Global Warming Innovator by Time Magazine. He also has a book out, which we will talk about, called Getting Green Done, Hard Truths from the Front Lines of Sustainability Revolution. And James Hansen of NASA has called it an antidote to greenwash. Welcome, Auden. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining. I appreciate it. Um, so you have been in the field of sustainability now for long enough <laughs> to know what's going on. You know, historically, the ski industry had no um, real concerns about uh, environmentalism because they, resorts are outside and they're beautiful and in summer they're beautiful and no one thought twice about the impact of ski resorts. Well, that that changed probably almost 15 years ago now when um, eco-terrorists targeted a lodge at Vail and burned it down because of uh, Vail's expansion into sensitive habitat for lynx. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, in a way, it was a wake-up call, but that wake-up call was, was coming anyway because obviously ski resorts are hugely energy-intensive. They fly people from all over. It, it, it's sort of hard even to talk about sustainability from a ski resort perspective because it's such a um, superfluous and energy-intensive industry. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the, the evolution, things changed. The industry became more aware. And, and simultaneously with that, uh, the issue of climate change as a threat to the business became apparent. Um, you know, resorts said, well, what if there's no snow? Resorts in Europe started closing due to climate change. Um, That's already happened. So um, this issue popped up. The problem has been um, it's not necessarily something ski resorts want to talk about, um, even though it's the most pressing environmental issue we face or most pressing issue we face, period. Because if you talk too much about climate change, people won't invest in their future skiing, like buying condos or teaching their kids to ski and so forth. Or at at least that's the, the concern, I think. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, Aspen is known as being, you know, much more posh than than other resorts. And so you're going to get that that component as well, where I would think that, um, you know, sort of the five star, the five star recognition of hotels and restaurants and, and all that is much more uh, at the forefront of people's minds than perhaps energy savings. Oh, yeah. I mean, you have this issue that isn't just a, a ski resort issue. It's a vacation issue. People conserve water and take shorter showers at home, not when they're on vacation. Um, and, they, and they don't want to be told about that, and they don't want to be dragged down by kind of doom and gloom. And, you know, they're on vacation. So that's 
That's true throughout the hospitality sector. Um, at the same time, though, I mean, I think that's a five-year-old or ten-year-old concern. Now, more and more people are 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 saying, "What what are you doing on environment? Because we care about this. This is part of our life. It, you know, vacation is is includes our our values as human beings and." We want to know what you're doing, and if you're not doing enough, we're actually going to find another hotel. I got a call like this just the other day, so yeah. it's encouraging and it's changing, and uh, that's 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 exciting. It is exciting. So you you said that the the Aspen Ski Company, you know, with with um, all of its money and strength, can become a laboratory and a model for the rest of the world. Do you still do you still believe this, and and, and how how so? Well. This gets at the question of how can someone from Aspen uh, working at a ski resort even talk about sustainability? Isn't it ridiculous? Isn't it hypocritical? And the short answer to that is yes, but the problem is that really every business is is energy intensive and can't really talk because their, uh, their impact, their carbon footprint is so great. So um, you, you can pick on skiing, sure, and that's a logical argument, but you could pick on really anything, um, mm. chip manufacturing plants, uh, data centers, uh, anything. Um, so really what we, the, the, the realization we had is, look, everybody in every sector is going to need to address carbon emissions and work on policy issues. And we need to say, well, what if we really cared about climate change, but still needed to stay in business because we're a business and we provide jobs and we're the anchor for this economy, what would we do? And uh, we came to the idea that Aspen's biggest leverage, our biggest opportunity is using the, the platform and the power of the name and the brand and the people who come visit here to try to drive the biggest scale policy changes possible in Washington and in corporate America on climate. So that's where we've focused our attention over the last few years. It's a, it's sort of like making um, climate change sexy, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, essentially, what we're we're saying is, as an example, we have um, the snow sports industry. Is it's a, if you include all aspects of it, it's a sixty-six billion dollar industry. So it's oh. a jobs question, but we also have these athletes who reach. Um, hundreds of thousands, if not hundreds of millions of people every year. And they all, um, without exception, care deeply about climate change. So if you have one of these celebrities starting to bring this issue up in an informed way, you can create the grassroots support you need for legislation. And we've been doing that a lot as well. I know that you just recently went to, to Washington. Tell me, let's talk about that trip. We were there talking to you know, we talked to lawmakers who supported climate action, and they said, um, talk to the people who disagree. And when we talked to the people who disagreed, they disagreed, <laughs> and we couldn't make any progress with them, even though they were very polite um, and receptive. And, and in some cases, we just couldn't get in the room with the people, uh, the opposition people or kind of people on the fence. So... Um, what, what was valuable about the trip wasn't the, the what happened on the ground in D.C. It's the story of the trip, and that we've been very effective in telling. And, you know, the question of whether celebrities uh, can help uh, on, on policy issues 
it's open. But the reality is these people are admired by hundreds of thousands of people. And if they take a stance and if they say, hey, you know, you really should read about this, a bunch of people and a lot of young people are going to do that. So it's it's a piece of the solution. It's not going to do it all, but it's a piece of it. I want to talk about specific climate change examples. Are you seeing changes in Colorado? I lived in Colorado about 10 years ago. Um, I left there about 10 years ago. And are there are there examples now of how it's getting the snow is coming in later? Um, well, for, first off, you know, it's very difficult to say, OK, here's what we're seeing on the ground or as, as a result of climate change. And it's important, really important to note that what we're talking about is global uh, climate over the long term. And if you look at that, it's uh, unequivocal. You're, you know, 2010 was was the hottest year in recorded history. We're seeing these absurd temperature anomalies in the in the northern latitudes uh, that last year uh, it was 18 degrees Fahrenheit hotter than it had been on average in the last century. So we know it's happening now locally. Um, you, you're seeing spring uh, runoff coming earlier. You're seeing um, spring itself with blooming of flowers coming uh, earlier. And so it, winter is shorter by about three weeks over the last 30 years. And you're also seeing in, in the Rockies uh, disproportionate warming. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the science and the, the on-the-ground data is showing it all over the long term. Now, last year it rained on Christmas. Is that climate change? Well, it's very difficult and, and a little dangerous to say, yeah, we're seeing climate change. But you don't need those pinpoint micro events. Uh, you just look at the big trends, and it, it's very straightforward. The, the Wall Street Journal um, recently printed an op-ed by a, a Berkeley professor who was funded by uh, the Koch brothers who oppose action on climate. And he said, hey, I did an analysis, and climate change is happening. Uh, so if the Wall Street Journal is reporting that, I think we can be pretty confident of what's going on. Let's go back to Washington, um, because I wanted you were, you actually were able to meet with with Markey. Is that right? Was that one? Yeah, of the we people? met with with Ed Markey, congressman from Massachusetts. That meeting wasn't um, to convince him of anything. Obviously, Ed right. Markey's maybe the most progressive or one of the most progressive elected officials on climate. Yeah. It was more of a thank you, you know, and, and Marky is a, a hero to me and others there. So we just talked about, um, you know, what's going on. We thanked him. And, you know, I, he said, um, we're going to win because we're right. Um, it's just that, that, that liberals are, are right too soon, you know, <laughs> 10 mm-hmm. years too soon. Um, so it, it's encouraging to for us and, and for me, I think, in particular, uh, to meet someone who's still out there fighting and optimistic. Uh, but, you know, really what we need to, to be doing is not meeting with Markey, but meeting with these radical um, deniers and say, hey, we are business people. We represent this this huge piece of the economy in many states, including Massachusetts, and we need to act on this. And by the way, the solutions are... Uh, use on-the-shelf technology that, uh, that typically benefit business. They save energy, and they clean the air, and they're good. These are common-sense solutions. Let's, let's go back to um, people that you met in Washington who 
you did get access to? Because I know the doors weren't open to you in a lot of instances. Uh, is there a specific example of someone who surprised you when you were down there? Um, surprised me, no. But um, okay. we, we met with Murkowski's staff, and Murkowski um, obviously opposes um, climate action and has, uh, at the time, was supporting uh, weakening the EPA and its ability to regulate CO2. But at the same time, Alaska is ground zero for climate change, um, and Murkowski's seeing it. She doesn't deny that it's happening. Um, I, I don't even think she denies the anthropogenic cause of it. So it's just that all the money in Alaska comes from petroleum, and she's not going to pass legislation that taxes that. So the, the, Murkowski was wide open to talking to us. Uh, her staff was, and extremely friendly and extremely polite. But basically, the upshot was, "Hey, look, <laughs> look at our state. We're not gonna, we're not gonna move on that." Which is both understandable, um, but also incredibly kind of short-sighted and ironic because. There are towns in Alaska that are falling into the sea because of climate, and, and Alaska is seeing uh, disproportionate warming as well because the northern latitudes are seeing that warming. We are going to talk about uh, your book. Um, I'm excited. You, this came out in uh, 2009. Is that correct? Yeah, and then it was updated uh, with a new preface in 2010 and came out in paperback. Oh, okay. Okay, great. So one reviewer has say, said that it remedies today's green euphoria with a double dose of reality, illustrating barriers, frustrations, and failures of sustainability with stories from the author's experience. Um, it's gotten great reviews, and I think the reason why people are taking to it um, is because it's basically, in my, you know, just to summarize, is is saying that it's it's kind of ugly out there, and what companies are doing really isn't enough and it and it you need to get in in the trenches as as you put it um and talk talk to us a little bit about what what made you sit down to put pen to paper and and whether you think it's having a positive effect on the on the business world well so i'm in this field called sustainable business and there are lots of books about what we do and all the books say the same thing they say um look Solving climate change, which is what sustainability means, um, it's it's profitable. It's good for the environment. It's a win-win. You save energy. You get good PR and so forth. And it, it's just why wouldn't you do this? Well, the the problem with that argument is that it's not happening. So if it were so easy and so profitable, you'd think in a free market kind of world, um, it would have happened already. And the reason it hasn't happened is that. The reality of trying to do this work is really messy and complicated and bloody, and I'm going to give you a good example of that. But what I thought was lacking in the world was an honest conversation about the barriers and the challenges in making sustainability happen. So let me let me give you an example. Most corporations, um, well, first off, here's context. The, the scientific community tells us that if we want to stabilize um, atmospheric CO2 concentrations at a level that is survivable um, for civilization, we have to cut CO2 emissions um, 80% by 2050. So this is a total restructure of society. And even if you do that, you're going to have warmed the planet a couple degrees Fahrenheit. So um, 
if a corporation needs to cut its CO2 emissions 80%, how's it going to do that? Well, what most businesses do is they start out and they, they attack the, what's called low-hanging fruit. So they'll do lighting retrofits that have 100% return on investment, and they'll do it. They'll save energy, they'll reduce CO2 emissions, and they'll stop because everything else is harder, um, it's got lower return on investment, and they can't do it. And so what they've done is they've cut their emissions 10% if they're lucky, and they're done. But they can't even get close to 80%, and actually they squandered their opportunity because the lower return on investment stuff needs to be bundled with the good opportunities, like lighting, to make it happen. So there's an example of, hey, by doing the right thing and pursuing sustainability and getting pressed, you actually fail to solve the problem because you didn't address it deep enough or to scale enough. Um, and that's a pervasive problem in this field. And, and my book is full of my own kind of struggles uh, where, I, where I tried to do very, very simple things in sustainability and failed for really good reasons, but I failed nonetheless. Give us, give us a couple of examples. So sustainability 101 is you change your lights because changing light bulbs saves a ton of money. The light now typically improves. The bulbs last longer because you don't, they, they, they last longer and you don't have to replace them, so you save on labor. And when I tried to do lighting retrofits at a five-star hotel, I ran into barriers that no one could have predicted and, and that no one told me about when I was studying this or when I was working in the nonprofit sector. So here's an example. At, at the Little Nell Hotel, one of the reasons not to change light bulbs to compact fluorescence, those curly cube bulbs, was what if your auditor, the five-star, five-diamond uh, auditor, comes in, sees the bulbs, and doesn't like the look of it? Well, that's a threat to the whole business because they're people who won't stay at hotels unless they're rated five stars. So if by doing energy efficiency, you're putting your five-star hotel ranking in jeopardy, you're not going to do it. Well, in a million years, I never thought that that would have been an issue, um, but it, it came up and, and you could argue that's a legitimate issue. Um, right. So I hit, I hit a dozen of those barriers. And another example was, um, when I proposed in one case that we change the light bulbs, someone said, I don't believe they're going to save energy. Well, who would have thought? Who would have thought that that um, question would come up, that frankly you'd just be, you know, someone would, would argue against physics. And it, it actually is hard to prove that, that the bulbs save energy because often the, they're tied to other electricity uses in a building and you can't spot meter your particular retrofit. From the executive level, um, from people in the business, people at the Aston Ski Company or other, other people in the, in the executive, corporate executive world, um, when you go around and, and you talk and, and, you, and you go to meetings, what do you see? For, what are you getting from people? What's the overall tone? Of, well, here, of... here, yeah, here um, we've, we've, the battles I fought were really now five and ten years ago. Everyone here gets it and now it's really a question of how do you actually make these reductions? Um, it's, a, it's pretty difficult to cut energy use in an in a energy-intensive corporation. Um, but more broadly, as I travel and, and give talks in the, in the corporate world, what I get is a kind of, from people in my position and most Fortune 500 companies, 
have people in my position trying to save energy, trying to work on sustainability. I get a, a kind of pervasive frustration that they can't get at the big, um, big uh, energy cuts um, and, and policy action that they want to influence. Um, it's just brutally difficult because corporations typically have a goal, selling software, selling stuff, um, providing a service, and that trumps uh, thinking about energy and other things. And that comes back to, fundamentally, in the United States, energy is very, very inexpensive. And until it, it, there's a price signal whereby you can say, hey, if I save energy, it's actually going to improve my bottom line enormously instead of just a little bit, I, I think we're going to have trouble moving the needle. So... Do you have any hope here? I mean, I, it's it's hard. It's hard because I see, I you know, I'm in this field as well, coming from a different angle, and 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 it, it's frustrating. And I try, you know, I try very hard um, on my show to talk about some of the 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 better things that are going on, so that the people who don't understand these issues, the environmental implications of their actions, etc., whether it be at a micro or macro level, aren't overwhelmed. That they can come on, you know, listen and. and hear that there is hope do do you have hope that 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 there is going to be some real real bill mckibben style change going on here well the, i think the hope is comes from uh, an engaged electorate if if the public fails to to understand the issue of climate change and then act on it we're not going to solve the problem and there, there's some hopeful signs that there is a little bit of a grassroots revolution happening, uh, thanks in part to, to McKibben. And um, if you think about climate change, you, you know that, one, it, it's this incredible crisis, but at the same time, we know how to solve it, and we have the technology to solve it. So in a way, you can think of it as this incredible opportunity to achieve some things that humans have always wanted to achieve. We've always wanted to be able to take care of our children. We've always wanted to be able to treat our neighbors as we would like to be treated ourselves. And if you solve climate, you start to do this on this incredibly broad scale um, that, that taps into some of the oldest dreams and aspirations that human beings have ever had. So, boy, you can think of it as this terrible crisis, but you can also think of, this, of it as this unprecedented opportunity that taps something very visceral and, and human desire. Thank you, Auden, for, for coming on the show, and, and I look forward to having you back on um, to talk more about, about what's going on. You, you bring a wonderful perspective. Thanks for having me. The proceeding has been Nature of Business with Chrissy Coughlin in association with GreenBiz.com. 